why a study like this? Matter of fact, it's this, this study is actually extracted from my, my dissertation that I, on my first doctorate in, back in 1979, 80, 81. Um, and I thought it was pretty close to accurate back then, and I tell you, it's, it's, pretty, it's much sharper in focus now than it was back then. The title of the dissertation was The Nations That Forget God. It was a detailed historical and spiritual comparison between the rise and fall of the northern kingdom of Israel and the United States of America. The, the reason northern kingdom, we'll talk about this, uh, when I say the kingdom here, I'm talking about the northern kingdom, her rise and fall of Israel. We'll talk about how we got to that connotation of the northern kingdom in just a minute. But the northern kingdom of Israel is comparable in, in several ways to the United States of America, whereas the southern kingdom of Judah is not. The southern kingdom of Judah is a theocracy. Um designated to have a son of David on the throne with the temple in Jerusalem, the capital in Jerusalem. And so being a theocracy, there's only one. So you can't compare some other nation in history uh, to that particular nation. But I think some comparisons can be made uh, to the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's why we're going to look at the northern kingdom mostly here uh, today but how did we get there first? And I, we're, we're, we're accustomed to a lot bigger screens down in the sanctuary. I, I know that you, that you Hawkeyes can see all that, but uh, you just have to take my word for it, won't you? This is uh, the empire of David and Solomon in the red outline. Maybe you can see the red. Okay, that's, that's what David conquered. Of course, Far, more, far much more than that belongs to Israel because God deeded it to them. But in actuality and in history to this point, only a certain portion of what God deeded to them or to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, as the promised land uh, have they yet to completely inhabit. But this is a big, this is a big part of it right here, what David conquered and then Solomon secured uh, as king. But then Solomon, and this is probably repeating some of the stuff you already know, but to, to put it into perspective and to bring us up to where we want to be in our study, Solomon sinned and the Lord gave consequences for sin. Those consequences were that the kingdom would be split in half, would be torn apart after Solomon's death, but it, the Lord wouldn't do it as long as Solomon lived with respect to David, his father. So then, Rehoboam, the son of, so the son of Solomon, was sort of an idiot, and he didn't 
he didn't rule that well and he made all the wrong decisions. And then Ephraim rebelled against him. Now Ephraim is a euphemism for the 10 northern tribes. Ephraim was by far the largest of the, of the groups, the tribes, actually half tribe, but they controlled everything because they were the biggest. So when you see uh, Samaria, that's a euphemism for the northern kingdom in the Old Testament after the split. And when you see Ephraim, for example, Isaiah prophesies against Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and he calls it Ephraim. So when you see that, you're looking at the northern kingdom. Uh, I'm just going to call it the northern kingdom of Israel as opposed to the southern kingdom, which after the split is called Judah. Judah by itself had, more, had a greater population than all of the other tribes combined. Second to that was Ephraim. And Benjamin joined Judah in making the southern kingdom. And then there were 10 tribes. The 10 other tribes of Israel formed the northern kingdom. Their capital city was Samaria, whereas Jerusalem was the capital city of the southern kingdom. So now, uh, the kingdom has divided, and here are a couple of slides. Here's one in the blue, the kingdom of Israel. Right in the middle of it, nearly you see the star where Samaria is. And the other cities of, of, of uh, note in the northern kingdom. And in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, um, are, are seen here in, in the uh, gold, I guess, or yellow, whatever that is. Here is another slide, a little simpler slide, that shows how Judah had expanded its boundaries at a time. Israel expanded her boundaries and borders at a particular time. This is a little more uh, general show of what it was like in David's time, but how it came to be after David's time, okay? Here's the Davidic kingdom. Here's the way that it divided in the time of Rehoboam. Okay. I don't know if you can see that or not. So there were kings of Israel in the north, kings of Judah in the south. There was no good king except Jehu down about the middle of the kings of Israel. He did a few good things, but generally it was all, they were all evil in the sight of the Lord. Now you go over to the right column, beginning with Rehoboam, you'll see that those in the dark gray are the ones who did that which was right. Those with lighter gray uh, had their good moments. And then those who don't have any gray at all or did evil in the sight of the Lord. So to contrast one with the other, you'll note that there was just a procession and a progression of evil with regard to leadership in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, we're going to see in the scripture that leadership is a tool that God can use, whether good or evil, according to how he will deal with his elect. God's concern, of course, 
is with the, uh, with the, with the godly, the righteous uh, remnant. So, now, looking here at the king, we separate, now, we separate out the kings of the northern kingdom, and we have the history of the kingdom. It had a beginning, it had an end when Assyria came in and completely destroyed the place and displaced the population and spread them out. The 10 lost tribes they came to be known as. The first king was Jeroboam. He's the guy who really, who really gave Rehoboam, Rehoboam fits and, and then he just pulled away. Rehoboam couldn't do anything about it. Now these other kings down, of course Ahab is there. Ahab was just awful, Ahab and Jezebel. They introduced, they introduced things into the kingdom that never left. Uh, this, this evil that they introduced just was always there. Our concentration today, though, with regard to the contrast and comparison that we're going to make, will, be, will begin with Jeroboam II, the 13th king down. You will note that he ruled longer than any other king, Jeroboam II. Now, he was bad. He did evil. And we're going to look at 2 Kings 14 here in just a second. Then after that, it just, it just was one bad thing after another. Uh, and I'll, I'll address that as we, get through, as we get through this study. So, Israel's golden age is the age that uh, is the age of Jeroboam II. Let me go to Second uh, Kings 14, and we're going to see, we're going to extract from just these few verses, actually the entirety of his, of his life is given in verses 23 through 29. I think I stop at verse 27 here, but we'll, we'll look at it. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the king of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, ruled in Samaria, 41 years. And he did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now that was the first Jeroboam way back that he had caused Israel to sin. So there was this mixture of, uh, of worship in the Northern Kingdom. The early Jeroboam had introduced in a way to compromise with people who were in the land. He sort of wanted to get along with them and they, they enjoyed the worship of Canaanite gods f for many reasons. But uh, if you study it out, Baal was the main chief Canaanite god that created such problems uh, with the people with regard to their sinful condition. Also, Moloch, the, the God to whom Israel offered babies, uh, sacrificed their babies uh, to Mach. So you have these two, the primary one being Baal. Baal, the, Baal was a God of fertility. His, his, the religion that was produced from Baal was a fertility cult. Now, anytime that you see the phrase fertility cult, with regard to paganism, you can understand 
that it involves in its worship sexually perverted behavior so that in their temples they had prostitutes, both male and female, which also leads us to understand in, in the study of, of, the, of, this, of these religions like this, fertility cults, that there was, there, there, there was all kind of fornication, including homosexual activity and uh, behavior. So this kind of mindset was introduced into the northern kingdom of Israel as a worship of a god. Okay, there was a strong mindset among people. Unfortunately, it spilled over into the minds of uh, the northern kingdom that gods were tribal, that, that gods belonged to a particular nation and that, for example, Yahweh was the tribal god of Israel. But... Uh, Baal was a, a tribal god that was introduced in Canaan. And so they would sort of say, well, you know, I'll come back and play with Yahweh tomorrow, but I want to I play with Baal today. Um, and and they, just, they just, this is how insensitive they came to the things of Yahweh, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, the, so in a great part, too many people became too comfortable in what they were doing. Uh, with regard to this horrible lifestyle that was developing in the northern kingdom of Israel. So when we see that these sins were introduced, these sins continue on and they reach sort of an apex with, uh, with Ahab and Jezebel on down the line. But Jeroboam II, of whom we speak here, is after Ahab. So he takes over a secular nation, it's not a theocracy, but he assumes the throne of a nation that has a strong believing population. There's still a lot of people in there who made the trek to the temple in Jerusalem on the, on the specific days that they were to go, you know, Passover, these other things. Uh, there was still a, a strong a strong, strict following of Yahweh and the Torah of Moses uh, who lived up there. And these people, of course, came out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was Israel, with whom God had formed a covenant. And the covenant loyalty and the covenant love, the chesed, it's called in the Hebrew, God always assumed the responsibility for it. The people could never be dependable, but God was always dependable. So for the sake of all of that, God was looking after his elect who were in the northern kingdom. They all came out. They had a good start. They came from a Bible, if you want to use modern vernacular, they came out of a Bible-believing group and uh, to a degree, they possessed the Bible that, that existed in that day uh, and a strong following of people, a strong number, a multitude of people still followed it. But there was this intrusion of sinful activity that was introduced by leadership and encouraged even by, by leadership that clashed 
with the very serious and sacred culture of the followers of Yahweh who were in the northern kingdom. So that sort of, that sort of sets the condition when Jeroboam II comes to the throne. So he's like, you know, he's like the president or what he's the, he's the, he's the dude. He's the, he is the leader of the nation, did that which was evil. But there's an interesting statement here. He restored the boundary of Israel from the approach to Hamath until the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of Yahweh, according to the Lord God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. Jonah was one of the prophets that prophesied in the time of the northern kingdom. And you remember he went to, he went to Assyria. Um, for Yahweh saw the affliction of Israel. Now, here, this is an important point. For Yahweh saw the affliction of Israel becoming increasingly severe with neither stored property nor free property and no one to help Israel. So they were in a weakened condition when Jeroboam II came to the throne. They were in need of being strengthened so that at this point in time, they would not, according to the will and purpose of Yahweh, they would not be destroyed. So, look what happens. This is Yahweh. He can do this because he's God. And Yahweh did not speak to eradicate the name of Israel from under the heavens. Okay, if Yahweh did not speak it, it can't be done. And he saved them, that is the northern kingdom, through Jeroboam, the son of Joash. That's Jeroboam the second. Well, we just saw that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Didn't matter to the Lord because here's the deal with, with regard to the purpose of the Lord. Here's the deal. God's concern was the affliction of Israel and the covenant that he had with them. It was not time for the people to fall under severe affliction and defeat. Now that comes later, according to the purpose of God, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But for now, that's not the case. So what does God do? Okay, here's this evil king, Jeroboam II. He's, as one preacher would say, he's lost as a ball in high weeds. He doesn't have any idea of, uh, of, of the difference between Yahweh and Baal. That doesn't matter to him. He's a power-hungry guy. You know, he gets taxes from everybody. But he's going to be emboldened. He's going to make all the right decisions. He's going to put the right people in the right places to do the things that will increase the strength of, nation, of the nation, the northern kingdom of Israel, as a nation among nations. So that in the time when Yahweh needed the boundaries to be secured, and in a time when he needed the people to prosper, and to be strong, God would work through Jeroboam. Jeroboam didn't know it. You can say that. You can, listen, the Bible says that God sets up kings and kingdoms. I guess, and I don't know all the kings and kingdoms that have ever existed. A lot of them, I'm sure, have been lost in history. But I'll, I'll just bet you a, 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 a dollar to a donut hole that that none of these, hardly any of these kings were righteous in the sight of Yahweh. Yet still, 
the purpose of Yahweh is accomplished. Um, we, I, you know, probably in past years, we, since I've been alive, maybe you were impressed with some presidents, not so impressed with other presidents. Um, and, and one or two may have misbehaved awfully and terribly uh, in that high position. But Yahweh was working his purpose through them according to his purpose in the church, for example, that's in the United States of America, what the church can do with its freedom and prosperity in the world, and also how the prosperity, strength, uh, and might of the United States could be used according to the purpose and will of God in these days to protect the nation of Israel. So a lot of reasons why that can happen. So even though, even though you might say of a president, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, it could also be said that Yahweh had not spoken evil of the nation yet, of the United States, and so he would save them through that president. He could do that. He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. And so we, we marvel at the, at, the, at the sovereign power and authority of uh, Almighty God. It was not time for Yahweh to speak to eradicate the name of Israel from under the heavens. So he saved them. And he saved them through the guy that he permitted to be set up. So this guy, this guy had all the personal resources. He had the personal authority and power. He, he was able to, to move and shake in just the right way to create a, in that setting and in that day to create an unquestionable world power. And that's what he did. And we get that from studying the two prophets that were sent to the northern kingdom, primarily these two prophets, Hosea and Amos. In the course of the study, we're going to mostly consider Hosea. Uh, and we will consider Amos some. But when you see what they prophesy against in the northern kingdom, then you will know, well, this is, this is a lifestyle. This is, the way, this is how they were. They, if, if he prophesies, for example, against their uh, ease of living and their wealth, well, you can understand they became wealthy. Uh, and we'll see more about that when we study Hosea. Now, also, when you study this little passage of Scripture, first, the first one of verse 25, Jeroboam II restored the boundary of Israel from Hamath to the Sea of Araba, according to the word of Yahweh Yisrael, which he spoke through Jonah. Well, if a prophet said this is going to happen, it's going to happen. If it's God's prophet, nothing, nothing in the world can stop that. And so God caused this to happen through Jeroboam II, even though Jeroboam II did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, you just read that little verse 25, and he restored the boundary from this place to that place. That's just sort of a sentence. But if you lived in that day, you would have seen that that took years to do and it took major resources. It took a major building up of military power. 
And it took a major investment from the economy of the nation. And for the nation to have an economy like that, the economy would have had to really grown. Something would have had to really make it grow and make it be big. And all these things happened. And they were all put together. Just one line in a verse says, you know, expand. But when you go back, if you lived in the day, you would see that that took years and tremendous investment. And it took strong leadership from Jeroboam II. And it took attacking the right army at the right time, expanding the borders so that during the time of Jeroboam II, everybody around him agreed, including Assyria, Everybody around him agreed, hey, those, those guys don't need, you don't need to fool them. They're, they're serious. They're strong. They have the money to do it. They have the military to do it. And they have the leadership that'll make it done. So we don't need to bother them. So this makes them, this makes them uh, prosperous as a nation uh, in their day. Now, why has all this happened? Verse 27. Because Yahweh did not speak to eradicate the name of Israel from under the heavens. It all, now, okay, there's a strong uh, inference here that there were nations, and there always have been, there even are nations today who seek to eradicate the nation of Israel. In every generation, God has said to the world in various ways, I'm not going to let you do that because I have established Israel, uh, my people. And even though a, a lot of the tribal people of other tribes besides Judah and, and today Levi uh, and also Benjamin and the other groups, God knows where they are. I don't know. God knows where they are such that when you get to the end of the age, you see them tribe by tribe named in the Revelation, but you also see them in this day, people coming back into the land. And that's all, and in my view, that's a fulfillment of prophecy. So God speaks and he says, I'm not going to let you do that. Now, from, from all of the world's perspectives, you'd think, ooh, these are mean and strong people. Ooh, this is a big old army. Man, that guy's tough. You would think... By looking at those nations and at the beginning of Jeroboam's reign, Jeroboam II, you would think, well, they could do that if they want to, but God didn't allow it. So it didn't happen. It's not going to happen. And we're, we're going to consider this. So, so let, let me back up a little bit and, and ask the question and then answer it. Why do we study something like this? Why do, why, why do we think about the demise and fall of our great nation. I'm, I'm assuming most, if not all of us here, are believers, and we have great concern for the direction that our nation is in, especially just in the last few years. It, I mean, we, we've always struggled with sin in high places and sin where you didn't expect it, but it just seems to be exponentially exploding in every part of the culture, including the church. And when that happens in the church, that among the elect, that, that, that group, that, that nation's in trouble. God has a way of correcting things. So I think 
to speak of the reason for our study like this, we want to have a biblical worldview of things. And we don't want to compromise that biblical worldview. If the Bible says that taking a direction down this road is wrong, then we should resist going down that road, not just resist, refuse to go down the road. And we should expect no less from those who are our leaders. And when the Bible says that this particular kind of behavior or activity is, is abominable or sinful or whatever, we should agree that's our biblical worldview. We stand with the Bible. And there's no question that this is what the Bible says about this particular thing. And we expect the place where we live to stand in the same way. And so uh, when we see these things overwhelming our culture and we see uh, in a greater sense leadership. Now, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say the elect of God within the nation, but I will say leadership just just reject the word of God outright, the authority of God, the authority of God's word. There are warnings, warning shots, then there are strict warnings, and, and then you don't pay attention to that, that's pretty much it. Hosea and Amos are the last of, of, the, uh, of the warning shots that are given um, to the northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel. All right, so let me go here. Jeroboam the second. I have, I have resources. I can't find my dissertation. It's in a box. I, over, over more than 40 years, God helped me to build a library of more than 4,000 volumes. And last year, I boxed it all up. It's all right there or right there. It's amazing. I, I found it all, except the junk that I didn't want anymore. So I boxed it all up, and I've put that dissertation somewhere. But I remember the sources that I used, so I... I, I belong to certain academic research groups and I was able to find the archives on these things. I'm trying to tell you that when I tell you something, I'm telling you the truth, okay? <laughs> and if you want the resources and you want to buy your way into these academic circles and pay for subscriptions and all, I'll give it to you. Or you can take my word for it, uh, one or the other. Now, th this is a great, two of them, uh, Rashi, that's an acronym for an ancient, he dates back to the six, actually the 600s BC, but he wrote a commentary on, on, Hebrew, on, on Hebrew scriptures that stands to this day as, as the flagship model of, uh, of Hebrew scripture commentary. So he translates and then he makes his commentary. Some of this is based on what he says. Uh, there's another guy, uh, Menachem Haran, very famous rabbi and commentator on Hebrew scriptures. 
his study. And then another guy wrote a book in recent years, uh, David Levy, his book on, it's a commentary, it's a book on the book of Hosea. Um, and what I have done is I have here more or less summarized what they say. Taking it from the Hebrew text, reading the words and everything that says about what Hosea said about the condition of people and what Amos said about the condition of the nation in that day. And that little phrase that we read in verse 25 a while ago from 2 Kings 14, here's what we see. Number one, Jeroboam II enjoyed unparalleled military success in his world in his day. So that means in the 41 years of Jeroboam II, within a few years after he became king, he ruled over unquestionably the mightiest military force in his world. Now his world would be that part of the Middle East. I mean, I don't, his world wasn't over in the Far East or anything else, but in his world, in the biblical world of which we speak, his military was the mightiest of all militaries at the pinnacle of his power. The economic power of the northern kingdom of Israel became unquestioned. Their, uh, their GNP, their rate of growth, all of these things were just out the roof. They, they made all of the right decisions with, with regard to trading partners and how, what to do with what they produced in goods and services. And they became a tremendous, the greatest economic power in their world, in their day. So you have the mightiest military power, the mightiest economic power in that world, in that day. Jeroboam II was able to forge an era of peace and prosperity because the people knew that he was a mighty king and he would do it if he said he'd do it. He had a mighty military to back him up, had a mighty economy to pay for whatever he needed to pay for. So there was peace and prosperity in most of the latter part of his reign. He had to fight for it, obviously, in the beginning of it. There was a great proliferation of goods and wealth. Amos, I don't really reference Amos that much today, but Amos spoke about the, the, the wealth and the great houses that the Israelites lived in in the northern kingdom and, and how they could recline on beds of ivory and all this kind of, they were rich. They were very prosperous. Uh, because of the goods they produced and because the world gave them a, a favorable trade, gave them favorable trade, the nation became a wealthy nation as a nation and individuals became very well-to-do because Jeroboam II had enough sense to know that he needed to spread this wealth around. He needed to let people enjoy at least some of the wealth that was gathered in what they did in whatever particular industry they were in. Hosea was the prophet to the north. So... Um, this is a place that I had designated for a break. Do we need a break or do we need to keep going? Huh? Break. Let's take five minutes, okay? Take a break.